Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The uh, Toronto District School Board have been in the news in the last uh, 24, 36 hours particularly because they refuse to support or promote the A Room of Your Own Book Club event, according to the club's organizer, because the TDSB, the Toronto District School Board, told the book club organizer, Tanya Lee, that the board's equity department believed the guest at this event, criminal lawyer Marie Hennon, would be attending and send the wrong message because Ms. Hennon had represent, represented John Gomeshi, the former CBC broadcaster, at his sexual assault trial five years ago. So I want you to have a listen. This is just a few seconds of Tanya Lee, the uh, organizer of the book club, speaking with my colleague Alex Pearson last night on Global News Radio in Ontario. Listen. This is illogical to me. I don't understand your reasoning or the equity department's reasoning. I don't understand it. These young women are exceptionally bright, exceptionally bright. Mm -hmm. They will put questions at Marie. Marie can handle it. These girls can handle it. They are discerning students. How do you create critical thinkers if you censor books and censor speakers? I don't understand that. Marie Hannon joins us uh, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Her, uh, her law firm responded to the TDSB. And uh, her book, Ms. Hennon's book, new book, is Nothing But the Truth, a memoir. This all just came together. Ms. Hannon, thank you for coming on the show. I just wanted to talk to you about your book. I had no idea we were going to be pulling in TDSB and this particular story along with it. How are you? Who knew? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing, Roy? I'm, I'm doing well. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Um, so the TDSB decision to not support or promote the book club or your appearance at the club because the board's gender equity group believes you defending John Gomeshi against sexual assault charges would send the wrong message. You responded on Twitter. Your law firm did. But would you just respond, respond here for the benefit of my listeners across the country? Sure. Uh, it's a, a fundamental and disappointing misunderstanding of the role of a criminal defense lawyer in our justice system. Uh, and to make those sorts of comments is to show, in my view, uh, a lack of knowledge uh, at best, and at worst, a real disregard uh, for what our justice system is about, what the various actors' roles are. Uh, it's, uh, it's disappointing, especially when it comes from educators. Yeah, if I understand correctly, somebody said it's a misunderstanding, but you know, I'll ask you to comment on that in a second. But the TDSB also won't support Nadia Murad, Nobel right. Prize winner, right? Activist, survivor of being an ISIS captive because the board fears her appearance would foster Islamophobia. It's, it's extraordinary. Um, she is a victim rights activist. She's a Nobel Prize winner. She's an extraordinary woman, I would think anybody would benefit uh, from reading the book. And, yes, yeah, she too was cancelled by the TDSB. So, 
Have they said to you that it's a misunderstanding? Have they been in touch with you since your law firm placed that uh, that tweet, which I think really clearly stated what this is about? Uh, they had not been in touch with me at all uh, until approximately an hour and a half ago. Can you share with us what they told you or well, wrote you? Sure. Uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Russell Rollins was very gracious. She's the director of education. Uh, and she apologized for the decision and invited me to have a conversation with her students. Uh, so I was gratified to hear that. Uh, I thought it was a gracious email uh, on her part. And I look forward to the opportunity to have a conversation with students and to discuss the things uh, I hope they want to discuss or they have questions about. Um, but that was the first time anybody had spoken to me, had reached out to me, had asked me anything. No one asked what I was going to talk about. Um, this was the first time. So I've been reading your book, and I'm learning a great deal about your your family. Right. Your family's arrival in Canada. Mm-hmm. The fact that you were a serious little girl at five years of age. Who didn't, <laughs> yes. I, you kind of frowned on your dad's dancing. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I learn about you growing up. I learn about you becoming um, a very focused young woman. I learn about you mm-hmm. deciding on law. I learn a lot about you. I learn about your years working for your erstwhile and maybe still most admired lawyer, Eddie Greenspan. I, I, I learn about all these things. Uh, and you're a challenging person uh, to read. I mean that in a very complimentary manner. Um, but I can't imagine you. I'm not blowing smoke here. I can't imagine you getting up in front of a high school book club and in some way causing issues. And for the life of me, I can't imagine how you, having been a lawyer, defending the fundamentals of justice in this country by defending Mr. Gameshi, um, I can't imagine how you would be creating a problem. So is the, this is a long way of my getting to this question. Is the situation with the TDSB specific to you defending John Kameshi, or is there a larger and maybe more murky reality at play? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, or I wish I knew. I, I wish someone would uh, explain it to me, but I can guess, because this is not the first time uh, this sort of reaction or response has occurred from an educational institution. You know, you should know, I taught law school for many years. I've spoken to high school students throughout my career. I've spoken to young women throughout my career. I meet with high school students one-on-one to uh, to often talk to them when they're interested in a career in law and they have some questions about it. So I, I don't know why that decision would be made uh, at all. Uh, but, you know, I have to think there are broader issues, as you identify, at play here. And... It tells me, really sadly and unfortunately, that educators are concerned if our students learn about the justice system and learn what defense lawyers do and learn what judges do and learn what prosecutors do and learn about the law at large. And I can't tell you why that is. I really can't. But it certainly is emblematic of uh, the view that we shouldn't be critically thinking as Tanya Lee said, that the role of educators and educational institutions at large is uh, not to encourage uh, different thought, to encourage listening to challenging opinions, uh, to encourage independent thinking, 
you know, if you're only going to raise children to hear uh, things that are easy to hear or things that they agree with, we are not going to raise critical thinkers at all. Uh, and I think that's the, the larger issue is that, you know, we are afraid to engage in conversation because apparently we should only listen to people we agree with. Yeah, that's what Twitter's for. Um, so I, I was criticized for interviewing John Rosen after Mr. Rosen's defense of Paul Bernardo during the Bernardo criminal trial. And this after I was a national trustee for the French and Mahaffey Families Victims Assistance Fund. So I had a relationship with the families. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Rosen came in after the trial. He sat down for an hour, and I took a lot of heat for in, for uh, for interviewing him. He took heat for being defending Bernardo. So let me ask you the question that may be troubling somebody at the TDSB and people generally in society ask, why do defense lawyers take on clients like Bernardo or Gomeshi or any number of individuals charged with extremely serious offenses? I know the answer, but please, uh, your words, why do you do it? Sure. Uh, The role of a, a defense lawyer is very specific in the justice system. When the state, when the government chooses you to prosecute, and brings the enormous weight of their power, of their authority, and seeks to take your freedom away. Because that is what is at stake. We cannot forget that. Seeks to put you in jail and seeks to really deprive you of the right to live your life in the United States. There is still the death penalty. We believe in our justice system that you are entitled to have somebody there for you challenging the evidence of the state, defending you, advancing defenses in law uh, that are important that a judge should hear. You're allowed to have someone argue your case for you, to voice your uh, your best defense. That is very critical, because if you don't have that person in, uh, in society, what you're going to have is you're going to have people who are wrongfully convicted, and we know that that happens. And we know, you know, in totalitarian countries, one of the very first lines of attack over and over in history is lawyers, defense lawyers in particular, judges, and the justice system. Because if you shut it down, if you shut that down, you shut down the ability of people to challenge the government, to have a voice, to, uh, to not be living in a police state, for example. So the role of a defense lawyer, and I understand people's reactions, but often when you talk about what it is you do, how you do it, why you do it, how things work in court, there's a far better understanding of it. So, you know, it it really is a a function of our democratic values and our belief that a person is entitled to a voice in court and they're entitled to be judged by an independent person, the judge. Yeah. Um, I have to take a break here. We'll come back and talk some more. But I I know, I mean, this this country and certainly the listeners to this program were very much invested in the uh, outcome of another, a case of another client of yours. I know you can't talk about the cases that you, the clients you represent, but I think a lot of people in this country want to say thank you to you for the manner in which you represented a very honorable man who served this nation for decades, and I know he's listening now, uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman. Uh, thank you, Ms. Hennon, for what you, for how you represented the Vice Admiral. Thank you. Ms. Hennon, in the book you, um, you say clients ask you, do you believe me? Right. Um, speak to that, please. How, how important is that? If a client says to you, do you believe me, what happens next? What happens next is I tell them you're asking the wrong question. 
you wouldn't go to a doctor and ask them, do you really like me before you perform the surgery? Again, it's a misunderstanding of what my job is and my role is. Uh, and my role as a, a defense lawyer is to, ve- to defend you to the best of my ability. Uh, and, you know, the, the do you believe me is, is really uh, a question which people ask because they're in such a state of distress and such a state of isolation when you're criminally charged. So I understand the question, but, you know, part of your job as a, as a criminal lawyer, as a professional, is to assist your clients in understanding what the system is, what lies ahead, what your role is. And uh, asking your lawyer whether they believe you or not is really the wrong question. If, and this is the extended question on to the last one, I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. If, if all your professional experiences and personal reasoning tells you your client is guilty, mm-hmm. then what? Same answer? Well, no. The, 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 if your professional reasoning and the evidence tells you your client is guilty, I mean, that's going to govern the advice you give to your client. Uh, you know, many cases are resolved by guilty pleas. Uh, I, I think people have to understand that you are uh, a professional as a criminal lawyer, and you have to bring your education and your forensic skill to it. It's not, it's not a magic show in court. And so if there is evidence that's problematic, you're going to speak to your client, you're going to investigate, you're going to see whether there's a response. And there are cases where there is no response. And if there is no response, you're going to try to get the best result for your client, or you may take the position that the state has to prove the case if it's not uh, a strong case from an evidence perspective. Uh, but all those things go into the mix of what you can and cannot do, and you're guided, obviously, by your ethical obligations. You know, the bottom line is, Roy, it's not what you see on TV. That's not how we practice law. Um, it's much more detailed and uh, forensic and skilled than that. Why did you choose to become a criminal lawyer? What, what was the motivation? Well, it's something I've always wanted to do. I I, uh, candidly wanted to do it since I was in elementary school. And the initial part of it was that I was very fascinated by the issues that are engaged in the criminal justice system. I mean, that is where uh, you think about it. Uh, As a society, uh, abortion laws are are struck down, where uh, Mm -hmm. drugs, marijuana is uh, legalized, where we argue about so many things, freedom of expression. So the issues that are engaged in it are, for me anyway, intellectually interesting, emotionally interesting, uh, and it is where I wanted to spend my time. And the second reason is that it's actually suitable to my personality. I mean, there's no mystery. I'm a fighter. I like it. So this is uh, a contained boxing ring, if you will. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about you on the air at the time that... uh that Admiral Norman's case was developing. Mm -hmm. And the consensus was, uh, we're so glad that it's you defending the Admiral because there was a a sense of confidence that you would, in fact, uh, get to the truth and and deliver the truth of of the situation. I know we can't talk about it uh, and the agreement that came out of it, but there must be times when, when you get to the end of a case like the one with Admiral Norman and all of its twists and turns, there must be a real personal satisfaction as well as a professional satisfaction when it's done, yes? Well, I, I think uh, at the time there's an enormous uh, sense of personal weight of of what's at stake as, as you feel with every client. But I, I think in that case, I certainly can say this, that it was very evident. You just needed to walk into the courtroom and see the number of lawyers from the government there. 
that the entire arsenal of uh, the government's authority and power and focus uh, was in that courtroom. There was no question. You couldn't miss it. Um, and that only served to spur us on more. Uh, we would not be uh, deterred uh, and uh, to, to fight even harder, to find the needle in a haystack or whatever it was that we were going to be presented with. So I think, you know, that was a significant burden. I think walking away when you uh, move away from a case, and it always takes a bit of time to get some distance and perspective, it just brought that into focus even more for me, which was uh, how how much the the cards are stacked against you when the government focuses on you. Uh, and um, we we came out of it, and Vice Admiral Norman got the result that he was absolutely entitled to. Uh, and so that, I think, gave me and, and my team, my, my co-counsel, uh, an enormous uh, sense of uh, satisfaction that we did the job we were brought there to do. I left this until the last, and I should have left more time for it. But it, this is your story. It's your book. Nothing but mm-hmm. the truth. Sexism. Is is it alive and unwell in the justice system? It, it's it's alive and, uh, and uh, virulent, not just only in the justice system, all over the place. It's impossible uh, to miss it. Uh, it. It's something that, you know, women deal with daily in in all facets and uh, it certainly exists in the justice system you know criminal justice particularly uh, when i was first entering in it 30 years ago it's a very male dominated field police officers back then certainly were predominantly male uh, and so it, it was alive and well but uh, you know as you see the composition of the court change as you see more women being elevated to the bench and more diversity that changes too. You know, it, it begins to reflect the community in a more realistic way, and I think that's been a really positive change. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 